0: The thing that'll determine retirement will be when I can't get into a bunk anymore.
1: Not the top bunk, you mean even the bottom bunk.
0: Yeah, the bottom bunk's good. You can roll into that. Middle bunk, you know, it's okay. If you're doing the top bunk and you can't do it anymore, maybe it's time yeah. to put on the Depends and you know, get the hell out of Dodge. But
1: gotcha. <laughs> What I love about Lee is, as a man, he is 100% authentic. And as a musician... He has been referred to as the most successful bass player of all time. Seriously, unstoppable, relentless, and undeniably amazing. I've recorded and toured with artists and bands for four decades. But Lee has been doing this for over five decades. I'm not saying that's how long he's played his instrument. I'm saying recording. Now, here's the short list of artists that he has made records with and some which I even got to record with. All right, get ready.
0: I'm going to take a nap while you're doing this, yeah, okay. okay? You
1: probably should because this is gonna be, this has been her four. <laughs> All right, ready. Jackson Brown, Phil Collins. He knows something about bass players. America Air Supply, Hoyt Axton, Clint Black, Willie Nelson, Stephen Bishop, Susie Bogus, Glenn Campbell, Kim Carnes, Peter Cetera, and he's a bass player. Stephen Curtis Chapman, Ray Charles, Cher, Joe Conker, Jude Cole, Billy Cobham, one of my favorites. Alice Cooper, Rita Coolidge, David Crosby, Crosby and Nash. Crosby, Stills and Nash. Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young. I think... uh, They couldn't decide. They think they liked them. All of them did. (laughs) Neil Diamond. I might have been on that record with you. Celine Dion, Donovan. I know I was on that Celine Dion with him. Donovan, Sheena Easton, Don Felder, Peter Frampton. Incredible. Peter Gabriel, Art Garfunkel, Vince Gill, Amy Grant. They know each other. They're married, right? Arlo Guthrie... (laughs) Sammy Hagar, one of my favorite. Merle Haggard, Hall & Oates, Faith Hill, Don Henley. I'm only halfway through. Julio Iglesias and his son, Enrique Iglesias, the immediate family. And we'll talk about that. Waylon Jennings, Wynonna Judd, B.B. King, Carol King, Chris Christopherson, Lisa Loeb, Patty Loveless, Live Lovett, who he's still with, Steve Lukather, Barry Manilow, Ricky Martin, I've done that, Richard Marks, Michael McDonald, stud, I just played with him. Reba McIntyre, Roger McGuinn, Bette Midler, and then he's playing on a million famous Japanese artists that I won't list them because nobody will know who they are, but they like the big, the biggest of the big. They sell out like, you know, the Tokyo Dome. Randy Newman, Aaron Neville, Olivia Newton-John, Wayne Newton, The Oak Ridge Boys, Dolly Parton, nine records. Billy Preston and Sarita Wright. I love that record. Yeah, me Bonnie too. Bonnie Raitt, Leanne Rimes, Linda Ronstadt, oh, seven records. Diana Ross- here, tell me if I say this wrong, Veronique Sanson. Veronique Sanson. Oh, there you go, Veronique Sanson. I'm not known as the Frenchman. Seven records, Santana. Oh, I think I've heard of them. Leo Serre, the Section, which we'll talk about that. Neil Sedaka, six records. Carly Simon, Ricky Skaggs, Rod Stewart, four records. Rick Springfield just played with him. He wrote a couple of great songs. He's great. Yep. Stephen Stills, three records. Now Stephen Stills is really tough on bass players. So when you bring Lee back. That means he likes him. Sting, I've heard of him. George Strait, Barbara Streisand. You know, if she doesn't like you, you're not there. Donna Summer, James Taylor. All in all, 14 records. <laughs> Kate Taylor, too. Livingston Taylor too. Billy Bob Thornton. Stud. Toto. Yeah. Three records when he toured with him. Tanya Tucker. Dion Warwick. Andy Williams. Paul Williams. Robbie Williams. Brian Wilson. The Wilsons. Wilson Phillips. Leanne Wormack, Womack, Wamack. And Warren Zevon, six records. Okay, now that's only some of the records he recorded. The list does not include the television and the film soundtracks he did. He's played on TV shows such as Ghost Street Blues, Night Rider, Simon & Simon, and also motion picture soundtracks. This is just the tip of the iceberg, such as Forrest Gump, Ghost, Kindergarten Cop, and My Best Friend's Wedding. I tried to pick the ones you might recognize. The list is virtually endless. But his touring discography is just as amazing. Few artists. A few he has toured with are like Phil Collins, Toto, Lyle Lovett, James Taylor, Jackson Brown, Carole King, and Linda Ronstadt. I mean, that's, I, I respect this guy. I mean, and I'm envious because he can grow hair. I grow hair on my tongue, my eyeballs, but, you know, not in the normal places. Anyway, <laughs> everybody, Lee Sklar. All right. The first question is, yeah, why? Uh, I have my answer, but I want to, why do they pick
0: you? What is is, is it? the way you tune the band, I mean, there's more to it than just... Um, you know, when I, when I look at this business, you know, we all show up with chops. If you get called, you got some. But I've always kind of looked at my gig as also being somewhat a cheerleader on things. You know, there's so many guys that become wallpaper on yeah. sessions where I really try to maintain a, an enthusiasm during the course of the project. You know, certain amount of levity and joking around and stuff to keep the atmosphere light. Now, when the light comes on, we're all... Dead serious, but I really want to maintain a thing. Uh, There's a lot of guys I know. Like after they do a track, they don't go listen to the playback. They sit there, they get on their phone, they dick around and do things. And you go, no, you really have to bring everything with you. So you you go and you listen to the playback. If you have any suggestions, throw them out there. The worst that happens is they go, no, I think we're good with what we got. And go, okay. But there have been many times where like, and you do the same thing where we come in, we go. It's a great tune. needs a needs a better intro. Or needs a bridge or something. And we step in and help create those things. Yeah. You're dependable. If it's a ten o'clock downbeat in the morning, you're sitting there at nine thirty, ready to go. Yeah. You know, I've I've gone. If there's charts or anything, I go through them to see if there's anything that's a little scary that yeah. I need to. You're not pulling on the driveway at five after ten because time is money. Yeah. So you become dependable, and people. There may be, I mean, I've done sessions where I know like there's another guy in town who would be better for this. And I'll recommend him when I hear this, like back when John Patatucci used to live in town, there's a couple of projects I worked on where I ended up doing most of it, but there were a couple of tracks. I said, call John. Yeah, yeah You'll yeah, love yeah. it. I'm off the clock, but I'm going to stay here and hang with John. Oh, that's stuff. cool. See, that says it right there. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, it's just a deep commitment to everything that, that we do. I We are professionals. This is our profession. And you treat it that way where a lot of guys get really blase about it and kind of show up late and they don't act interested and they're not really, they can contribute a part. But I think that over the years I've, I've cultivated. And plus, one of the early things that I really did cultivate was losing the gag reflex so that it really helps. You know, bring in more and more, more work. I I'm, I'm, I haven't learned that one yet. But oh, I, man. I, well, After we're done here, I'll work oh, with you on good,
1: it. Good, you know, you, good. <laughs> everything you said is, I mean, I know. I've seen it. I'm sort of that same guy. If I were a producer, I would want to hire you and this drummer, Kenny Aronoff. But I'd want to hire you because I want you in the room for that reasons you said. Everybody who gets hired is already a good player. Yeah. That's a given. But I want you in the room because you're going to save sessions. You're going to motivate the room. Your attitude affects the ripple effect. affects everybody around you. Yeah. Then you get another player like that. Now it gets... The producers... The juices start flowing. Yeah. They cast people. Yeah. This, in this town, we can name 10 great bass players. We can name 10 great drummers. Yeah. But the, why do they call these score I mean, that list, when you start seeing... That's what got me, oh, seven records, 14 records. That means they want you there, not just because you're a great player, because they want you there, and you... You have a thing that I call the three C's. I mean, you know how to connect with people. You know how to communicate with them. And now once you connect and communicate, now you can collaborate. That's the easy
0: There's part. There's four, and you know how to charge them. <laughs> That's it, the, <laughs> the fourth well, C. Yeah, but it, you know, it's one of those things that you take pride in in your craft. And so when you're in that studio, you want this thing to be the best it can be. And you put in... And when I'm saying you, I mean me and you and other guys that are of this ilk. I give the same amount of attention to like if some guy who's just Joe Blow, this is his one and only shot as I give to Phil Collins or James Taylor or Toto. To me, you have two options when that phone rings. You can say yes or you can say no. And If you say yes, it comes with obligation and you show up and you give the best you can give. And you may walk out of there going, nobody's ever going to hear this. This yeah. sucked. It was just terrible. Yeah. But sometimes you're totally shocked by it. I've yeah. done projects where I just thought, not in a million years. Yeah. And suddenly it's a hit. Yeah. And other things where I thought it was one of the best things I ever worked on. Yeah. And then there was maybe a change of administration at the label. And the new guys that came in kind of wanted to clean the slate. So they took the shit that we were working on and they shelved it. And they, we, Were you on
1: that Leon Rhymes? Record one record. It was like, and it never. She didn't really something want
0: to like be. something. Angel was
1: they, De- Desmond Child. Desmond Child. Yeah, and they,
0: that that never saw a light of day because she didn't really want to be. It wasn't our fault. She yeah, did. they were. She was trying to leave country and go more kind of rock, yeah. Yeah. edgy. Yeah, and she was great at it. Yeah, I mean, she did a great job. But yeah, I think they ended up getting a a single out of it, but it never it never got the the juice that that they talked. To. She had a new boyfriend or something yeah. was going
1: on. Uh, but the, it's yeah. always the boyfriend. You know, the thing is, is that, you know, if you look at it this way, I've thought about this. You know, like somebody gets hired to work in a corporation and they're, you know, they're there for their whole, we could be in seven corporations in one week. Think about it. Oh, yeah. Phil Collins on Monday, Leon Rimes Tuesday, Elton John Wednesday, or sometimes in one day. Will you walk into the room? That's what I'm saying. The skill set of being able to walk right up to Elton John and start talking to him. Yeah. And now you want him to like you. He wants you to like him. Yeah. So we're like, this is a huge skill set.
0: We literally work for so many different corporations one after another. Nah, that's a really. Well, just wait, wait till tax time. And all your paperwork shows up in the mail and it's W4s and 1099s. 80, yeah. it's like stacks of that's them right. where people that work for a company have one tax form that they yeah. do. Where so many of those cats would always look at me and be jealous of what I do. And I would look at them and go, go man, you got your 401k lined up. You've got all this, but they're sitting with their countdown clock on their desk to the day they can retire. Yeah. And boy, just ask any of us. So when are you going to retire from what? From what? this is That is like, that is
1: not even in my vocabulary. Yeah, You know, I've had this said to me, I won't say who, but I'll have people say it to me. and I'm like, are you kidding? This makes me feel good mentally, physically,
0: emotionally, and spiritually. Why would I not do this? Yeah not do this and be miserable now it's insane because every time you finish a gig if there isn't something immediately after yeah. it in the book you go it's over i'm unemployed yeah. well that and, and then the phone rings and then you're off but i've been saying that to myself now for 53 years yeah, exactly. and it never ends no it never
1: ends. We it's a weird thing because yeah like you said we don't have like pe- some people that have they have they know their whole structure for the whole yeah. year you know i finally got over the fact of my god what's gonna happen i don't have a gig it's already It's November and I don't really have anything. It
0: always works out. And that's a whole nother thing to have that attitude. It's like, I got this. This For me, for me, it changed when I finally really convinced myself that I have to look at this gig. I have to amortize it as an annual job and not a daily or a weekly job. So if I look in my date book and all of a sudden there's a blank page in there. Well, by the end of the year, if I've paid all my bills, socked a little bit of dough away and I've had a good time done, it's good. But it happens on an annual basis. I'm sitting here now. I've got stuff lined up for the summer. I'm going to be out for 10 or 11 weeks with Lyle. We just finished. We've got four more gigs to do. I've got stuff lined up now in February, March of next year. And at that point, I'm going to be going on 77 years old. Yeah. And I'm looking at it like I'm 18 years old. I mean, I'm excited. Yeah. I have no issues climbing in a bunk. Yeah. I figure... The hardest part, the thing that'll determine retirement will be when I can't get into a bunk anymore.
1: Not the top bunk, you mean even the the, bottom bunk.
0: Yeah, the bottom bunk's good. You can roll into that. Middle bunk, you know, it's okay. If you're doing the top bunk and you can't do it anymore, maybe it's time to put on the Depends and get the hell out of Dodge. (laughs) But (laughs) So, you know, like me, you are not just a session
1: guy. First of all, you become what, the session guy and it's like touchdown. Yeah. Or the guy that goes on the big tours like you do. Like uh did you ever go with Genesis or was it just Phil No, Collins?
0: Genesis was okay. self-contained. Phil Collins, and, you
1: know, have been on the big tours, you know. Yeah. Phil Collins, you know, James Taylor, to name a few, and Toto. But, you know, some people they become one or the other. Yeah. And that's it. And to become both. Like I was like in Mellencamp for 17 years and so everyone thought, well, he thought I start that I was a founding member. I wasn't, but man, I mean and not only that, but what you—it gets deeper than that. Okay, so the same guy did Hoyt Axton and Wayland Jennings, is doing you know Ray Charles and BB King, but then is also doing James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, but then also is doing you know Phil Collins. You know what I mean? Yeah, Billy That's, Cobham. <laughs> yeah, Billy Cobham, Stravis. Yeah. Man, I was in my diapers learning
0: that. But I mean, I was thing- in my diapers when I played it. <laughs> yeah. I still you. actually am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things where people have asked me in interviews in the past. They said, if you had to make a choice between touring and recording, what would you do? And I would say if I had to do it, I would take touring. Me too. Yeah. I mean, to me, the immediacy of being on stage in front of people of when I pluck a note live, that note's done. It's over. In a studio, I could hit that note. And they can scrutinize that for two days. Well, let's move it here. But fortunately, I've never been put in a position of having to make that decision. And there are a lot of guys in town that would, every time we'd be going on tour, when we became kind of like a call guys, and all of a sudden a tour was going in and they'd say, we wanted to get you for something. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I'm going to be out of town. They go, how can you leave? You're going to lose your gigs. And I'd go, okay, that's fine, whatever. But the thing that I found was important to do is treating all the people you work for with respect. So when I knew I was going to be touring, there was at that, especially in the old days, the 70s, 80s, into the 90s, when there was labels and everything was that dynamic rather than little indie projects, I would call all the people I normally work for and said, I'm going to be leaving town such and such time. I will be back at such and such time. There were times when they said, okay, we'll bump the project up so we can get it done before you leave. Or we'll, as soon as you get back. Yeah. And then two weeks before the end of the tour, I would start calling them all again, say, "I'll be, um, everything's done, I'll be back. There were times when I went from the airport right to the studio and oh, never yeah. even went home. But it was treating those people with the respect that they've earned by being the people that hire you for things. So you keep a line of communication going. So it was never an issue. But when things started slowing down for guys in the studio in town, when especially when digital happened and you know, and people were doing stuff with Synclav and all these things and people were starting to lose jobs, they would call and they'd say, if you hear of any tours, I'd, yeah. go, I'd go, you know, the guys that are doing it already have that dialed in. Yeah, I said, you know, if I hear something that I maybe can send your way, but odds are that's already a couple of guys deep in each seat. Oh yeah, and they're not going to let them go. They're not. Yeah, they're not going to find. What, what do you do in this situation? Because man, this
1: this is still a tricky one. You're booked to do a week with uh, somebody on the road or sessions, and then a big one comes along. A big one comes along, and it overlaps. There's like, holy crap! I can't be in two places at once. I'm just curious what your method.
0: You have a method to that. I remember having this happen one time. I was booked to do uh, one of Reba's albums. And it was going to be, I think, six days doing that project. I got called for a tour that was going to be three months. And what I did is I called Reba. I just called her directly. I said, Reba, you know, I, I love you, and we've already done a lot of records. But I said, here's what's going on. And as soon as I told her, she said, Take it. She said, We'll work again. She's, She's just cool, taking it. But if they're not cool, then then fuck them. Then fuck them because why? They yeah. don't give a shit about you. Obviously, at that point, you know. So yeah, you learn. Yeah, you find out yeah. real quick. You know I love how I they love, feel. Yeah. I've been really fortunate, like in the early days too, we when we had the section together, we were opening for James Taylor and then playing his show. And then we were opening for Jackson Brown and playing his show. Not on the same bill. No. So, But what we would do is we had management teams communicating with each other so that they would book oh, their tour. Right. And like we came off one of James's tours, the day we came off that tour, we were rehearsing for a week with Jackson and we immediately left on wow. his tour. So having everybody kind of being able to communicate with each other yeah. helps. Let me ask you this. So since you brought up the section, explain,
1: I mean, I've, I know what I know, the guys in, the, in that section, you guys were just session guys, but except for the wrecking crew, it's not that, com- or maybe Muscle Shoals, it's not that common that all of a sudden everyone goes, we, we got to get those guys and then they
0: get a reputation yeah. where they get a name. That's yeah. rare. Well, what happened with that was my first real work that brought recognition was James Taylor. How old were you then? I was probably maybe 20, 21, something like that. That's a good start. (laughs) um, James had just come back from England and was doing his, he had done an album for Apple Records over there with Peter Asher. Oh yeah, was that his first one? That was his first. I'll tell you a story about that. Then when he came back, they did his first son like james taylor i think where yeah. he was like laying down uh, yeah some well they had cut that album but i was in a band called wolfgang right. in 68 69 was that bill graham's yeah because we called it wolfgang because that was bill graham's real name was wolfgang and so we named the band after him talk about sucking up to. The oh band. no yo we couldn't have chowed down harder than, than we did a, but our drummer was a guy named bugs pemberton And Bugs was English, and he had been in Jackie Lomax and The Undertakers in England, who were rivals of the Beatles back in that time. Really? Yeah. They were that good? Because Jackie, they were great, and Jackie Lomax was like a movie star, visually. I mean, he was one of these guys that just, and Bugs was great looking, too. Well, one of Bugs' best friends was a guy named John Fishbeck, who owned Crystal Recording Studios on Vine Street. He did, like, Stevie Wonder's early records, Songs in the Key of Life, He would come and hang out at the rehearsals with us. Well, one of the rehearsals he came to, he brought a friend of his who had just come back from England and he had known, grown up with, and that was James. So James came to our Wolfgang rehearsal and hung out for a couple of days with oh, us. We were out, yeah. oh God, in Sunland or somewhere in that area. We had a band and He house. was like
1: 20 or something. Right? Yeah,
0: yeah, probably about 20. They had just finished the album, and he got offered a gig at the Troubadour. Now, when they cut the album... It was Danny Korchmar on guitar, Russ Kunkel was playing drums, and Carol King was the piano player with them. But they needed a bass player, and James called Peter, and he said, I think I've heard my bass player, I've heard my dream bass player. And they tracked me down and, and asked me if I could do this gig at the Troubadour. And I was still in college, I was still going to Cal State Northridge at that time. So we played the gig, all of a sudden James got offered like a month on the road, back, at like an East Coast tour. And they said, do you want to do it? And I I had like finals or something coming up. And I said, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I left after five years of college. I walked out the door, never went back, never called anybody to say. Did you ever get the degree? No, never got the degree. I did did five years too. Yeah. I I had enough units. I just didn't have enough classes. Yeah. 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 Because I kept changing my major and I I, I liked learning. So I I just kept changing majors and trying different things. But we did the first tours with the band, the first like year. At one point, James said to Carol, I want you to do some songs of yours in the show. And nobody knew who Carol King was. They maybe on records had seen Goffin and King yeah. with songs like The Locomotion yeah. and all this stuff. Well, Carol was a monstrously successful songwriter when she was like 17 years old. And she and Jerry Goffin, and they were eventually married. So at a certain point, James called her out on stage and said, play a few things for the audience. She did. Nervous as hell because she'd never performed right. with people before. Got out there and the crowd went crazy. Well, Lou Adler then signed her to Ode Records and they went in the studio and cut Tapestry. So you're going to come are kind of we were on Tapestry? No, because she was married to a guy, a bass player named Charlie Larkey, who was the bass player in Joe Mama, which was the band Cooch was in with his wife, Abigail. And Joel O'Brien was the drummer in that group. And this is East Coast. This yeah, is this York. was all New York based. Yeah. So they went in and cut that and we're kind of sitting there going, okay, let's see. We have a a side person in the band who has like the biggest record in the world. (laughs) Bye. I mean, it's time for you to go pursue. Yeah. We need a piano player. Yeah. And so I got a a producer who I used to work with named Michael Jackson. Wasn't that Michael Jackson, but, and, and he just, this guy just passed away like last year or the year before. And he was like responsible for like Kiss and everything. I did all of Paul Williams's records with him and stuff. Well, he called me to do an album over at A&M, and it was Tom Jans and Mimi Farina. Now, Mimi Farina was Joan Baez's younger sister. And when I went to do this thing, there was a piano player on it named Craig Durge. And I called Peter right after that because that was about the time Carol was going to be departing. And I yeah. said, I think I found a replacement. This guy's unbelievable. And he came down and was a perfect fit, So. When we were on the road, we were all horny to play all the time. And James never really cared about it. He would come do a sound check and then he'd go off and just be, be James, do yeah. whatever he wanted. And we would sit and jam. We would just sit and jam and mm-hmm. play until they told us to get off because they were gonna open the doors. And one of those evenings, Peter Asher called us aside and he said, I want to play you guys something. And he played us a thing and we went, That's great. What's that? He goes, That was your sound check. That was your sound check. Yeah. And he went and got us a record deal with Warner Brothers. Wow. And so we, we did two albums with Warners, yeah. neither of which did much of anything. Because mm. I think when they signed us, their assumption might've been because of our pedigree that they were going to get like the Eagles or Poco or right. the Burrito Brothers, right. something of you know, that but kind But you guys of didn't have the vocals like the Eagles. N- well, no. And, and plus we were playing rock fusion at oh. that point. So I think they really didn't know what to do with us now. Peter, they were involved with Mahavishnu Orchestra, also Nat Weiss, who was Peter's partner. Is
1: that the how you hooked
0: up with yeah. maybe Billy or Yeah, so we, we ended the section ended up doing a tour for about five weeks opening for Mahavishnu Orchestra. What year was Bill, that? that was probably seventy two, late seventy-two. I saw the Mahavishnu and they just
1: had uh, uh, Inner Mounting. No, Inner Mountain Flame was already they hadn't released the. what was the next one? It's it's the spirits, not spirit um of flame, and then uh, yeah, it's hard to remember anyway. that. So. But uh, I saw uh, you; they were I, unbelievable.
0: And and I saw so, an during,
1: orchestra. Someone said, "You want to go see this Mahavishnu?" I went. Oh, orchestra! I mean, I'm studying
0: music, classical music, and I went. Really? <laughs> really? Wow! Yeah. So so guys? um, Billy and I became. I mean, we were all friends. I mean, Jerry Goodman and and us yeah. and Jan and everybody. But Billy and I became friends on uh, during the course of that tour. So when that tour ended, Billy called me and he said, look, I got a record deal. You want to come to New York and do it? Well, I flew to New York and we did that album in two days. It's basically one take or two takes of each song. And the thing was, when I was in Wolfgang, one of the other acts that the, the management company, the local management company had was Zephyr, which Tommy Bolin was in Zephyr. So I knew Tommy from like you bought 68. Tommy. No, I was so surprised when I got back to New York and I walked into Electric Lady Studios. And there's Tommy. And we hadn't seen each other in like three years. And on that record, is probably some of the greatest guitar playing Spectrum. anybody has ever done. And it was all live. There's one point in that record where Tommy's playing a solo and yeah. breaks his E string in the middle of a solo. And you can hear it on the record. Yeah, it Keeps on blowing. They, there was what no punches. Was Do you remember? I would have to like Tarion, and But Matador, that's a Spectrum one. album. That was Spectrum. That Dude, was. that was... An and old... And that record to this day... You know, if I walk in any studio or any situation in the world and I start going, do 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 guys jump all over it. Yeah. And you look at that, and that was 1973. But it stood the test of so time. So
1: the thing about the section, though, is like, once again, it's like, I mean, that's all in the realm of getting the right team yep. together. And the chemistry. chemistry and teams win Super Bowls and, you know, World Series, not individuals. That was the example. And thank God, whoever, all these different people who want to, they recognize, get that team, yeah. get 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 that sound. And once again, it makes the job easier for the producer.
0: When I look back to my career, there are certain things that, that happened that I have to say were game changers. One of the greatest game changers was working with Peter Asher, because mm-hmm. Peter insisted that our names appear on the albums, because mm-hmm. the Wrecking Crew never got album credit. Oh, there wow. was liner notes and things like that, yeah. but they never said, here's the drummer, here's... You know, it's how. So when people were listening to Frank Sinatra and the Association and the Mamas and the Papas wrecking and the Beach Boys, they didn't even say Wrecking Crew. There was no musician credits on those things. So people didn't know it was all the same cats. Well, when we started James's stuff with Peter, he said, no, I want everybody to get album credit yeah. on it. So when James is suddenly on the cover of Time magazine as the face of this whole new era yeah. coming up of music, then all of a sudden the labels started signing all like the Jackson Browns and Casey Kelly's and all the, all I mean, tons and tons of, they would look at James's record, see our names on it and go, well, if they're good enough for James, let's call those guys. But the thing that was scary about it was literally going from zero to a hundred in one day, because the only time I'd ever been in a studio before that was when we went in the studio in San Francisco with David Rubinson to cut some demos with Wolfgang that never even got finished. That was my entire breadth of my studio experience. And the next thing I know, I'm becoming a first call guy. And I have no idea what the hell's going on in L.A. In L.A. Yeah. At the the peak of the beginning of what was going to be the peak of the
1: music business. All right. So I want to go back. Because a lot of people don't know this. So, you know, you grew up in the Midwest, Milwaukee, I think. Then you moved to L.A. when you... you We were were four when I moved here. So I really... And you started playing piano and you were like outstanding for your age group. and. You're having fun playing piano and you're winning all these competitions. And okay, how did you go from a piano to upright bass? It was upright bass, right? Yeah. And then how'd you go from upright bass to electric bass?
0: Yeah. When I went into junior high school, I kind of went in with the attitude, your piano player has arrived. And Ted Ted Lynn, who was the music teacher in the school I went to, Birmingham was a six year school. It was six to 12 in there. It wasn't a separate junior high school. Oh, oh, see, and high school, right. So I had the same teachers for, for right. six years in there. First day in school in the music department, I you know kind of said, oh, I play piano. He goes, we have a lot of piano players. We need a string bass player. And he pulled an old K upright out of the back room and showed me how to hold it. And I plucked a note on that and felt that vibration. And I just went, okay. So he took me aside and gave me some rudimentary lessons on what it was all because within like three months, we cut a junior high school dance band album playing like Autumn Leaves and all these things. And I've still got that at home. I mean, it's really great. But it was one of those things. Your life is like all these roads that suddenly splay out. And there's different roads. you And you try to just, you hope that you're following the right path that day. But none of them necessarily are wrong. Oh. You just follow that. And, and so no, for I'm me, wrong. when he pulled that out... so. So, I ended up with upright teachers on it and really classical and jazz oriented more than anything. Of course, for that. But suddenly know. I started joining bands and playing rock. And this was like in the 60s. So, uh, well, th- yeah, this was in the 60s. And so, like rock was just coming in strong and it was well, the Beatles. Electric. The Beatles well, yeah. really changed everything for, changed all of, for everybody. Yeah. But yeah, so I was playing with these bands and my hands were bleeding because I'm trying to play over drums and oh, yeah. electric guitars. So my dad finally took me to, it's been Stein on Vine for decades, but the Stein music originally was in the Musicians' Union building. And my dad took me there and bought me a melody bass and a St. George amp. And all of a sudden, I was a contender in the bands I was playing with. I could be heard. I was still playing upright at that point, but I didn't have an upright. So when I had anything to do, they would let me take the one from school with me and some like walking two miles home, lugging on upright bass and shit. But uh, we would play, I, I worked with some guys down at like the lighthouse. One of the greatest things was in like 1963, I was in a group called the John Gross Quartet and John Gross was a sax player who's still in town here and a keyboard player named Stanley Seal, who was like so insane. He built his own pipe organ in Jesus. his house and so um, and, and, and a drummer on this, and we would go play all these jazz gigs and stuff. Well, the weird thing was, at a certain point, I heard that the after we had we had worked for a while and then split up, the drummer had taken a gig over in Europe. A young Cat went over there and got died in an accident. But what I had heard was decapitated in one of those cage elevators in France, like looking through to see where they came by and lopped his head off. Well, that the drummer was Don Lombardi and uh, and I was at that point we would play his, they, they, his brother had a restaurant in downtown LA called Lombardi's and we play there. I was at Louis Belson's funeral yeah, and I was standing around and Terry Bozio comes over. And so we're, I've known Terry for a long time. So yeah. we're sitting and talking and he goes, I got to meet a friend of mine. And he brings up, he says, this is, Lee, this is Don Lombardi. And I look at him and I go, were we in a band in 1963? And he goes. Yeah, with John and Stanley. Well, it turns out that he was supposed to be on that gig. A guy did get killed on this gig, but it wasn't him. But for decades, I thought, I had no idea he started DW drums and had Latin percussion. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the most successful successful American. And I thought he was dead all these years. So it was one of those moments I'm looking, I'm going, I thought you'd been dead for like (laughs) decades. It was just a surreal. Surreal, yeah. Cause you literally thought he He was was dead. Yeah. And there were so many little things like this that happened throughout. Yeah. You know, we've all experienced this. The more you're around people. Yeah. You know, like there's people that have jobs where it's a small circle that their job exposes them to over the years. It's, you know, a tight little company. I mean, we know so many people and so many have come and gone because of lifestyle choices and Mm -hmm. stuff. I mean, I just finished six weeks with Lyle and lost seven people during the six weeks that I was on the road. Six, seven people died during that period. Yeah, You know, oh. David Lindley and David Crosby. Oh, and all these people. And Michael I'm just, Rhodes. It's just like, Oh, yeah. Damn. And it's just shocking at times. Yeah, but you look you, at your phone and it's like... Well, you're almost afraid like when you talk to people. You're almost afraid how oh, so-and-so you don't want to hear. Yeah. Because for a while it was they were getting divorced all the time. Yeah. But I remember like I was at Home Depot one day and this guy I knew was there and he, and he came up to me and he goes, have you heard about Chris Bond? And I'm like, Really, Because Chris Bond, I'd worked with as a producer. We did early Hall and Oates stuff together, all kinds of stuff. And I thought he was dead. And he goes, no, he's Chris DeBond now. Oh, well, I said, it, it, thank God. Thank God. And we finally tracked each other down. And, and he had had a, a, a yeah. total sex change yeah. operation. And he was happy for the first time in his life. In the wow. same way of Christina Pataki yeah. from Capitol was Charlie Pataki. All the years that I worked at Capital and Charlie became a woman. Oh, but, he, but he became the woman he really always yeah. wanted to be. So I was grateful with them that I wasn't hearing that more people had died. Yeah. So, okay, here's an uh, interesting thing because I, I grew up sort of the same
1: time. And I think, you know, let's just put it away. In my world, the drummer who plays with the highwaymen, you know, Johnny Cash, William yeah. Chris Dahl, Waylon Jennings, and then they asked me to go on tour. I didn't want, I wasn't ready to leave Melon Camp. That guy doesn't even get the audition for the Smashing Pumpkins, let alone get the gig. I mean, you know, I mean, they usually, well, oh, he's a rock drummer, but nah, we need an alternative rock drum. We need an alternative rock drummer who can play left hand. I mean, but you, like me, has somehow broken the mold. We've been able... We're chameleons. To, but even if you wanted to be, yeah. it doesn't work out that way. No. So I think one part of that is when you were a little kid, I'm curious, what were
0: your parents playing on... Everything. My point. Yeah. I knew that was... It a, was an eclectic... See? How everything you from Martin everything. Denny to Bach to the Righteous Brothers. There you go. Yeah.
1: So when I remember when I was at music school, I don't know if you had this thing. Well, I was a performance major in classical because there was no school of rock. I went to Indiana University. Very, very competitive school. Hard to get into. Five orchestras, five jazz bands. Opera I had to do twice a year. And I remember I was studying, you know, practicing my ass off on mallets, timpani, and everything. And then, but at night, I'd do bebop with the jazz majors up there. And they be going, man, what are you doing that classical crap for? And then the classical people would be going, like, well, we doing that jazz stuff. Yeah, and both of them were giving me crap for playing R and B, rock, even like oh,
0: country. C- country, music. that was. Oh, dude. Yeah, and and they're all giving me crap. I just liked it all. It's music. Yeah, it's music. I want to play good music. Yeah. and and in any I mean, I don't care if I get called for hip hop or 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 or, yeah. or or you know anything, anything. You go in you make your ears available to all of this. So you have some idea. Now you may not be the best guy at that specific yeah. thing, but you're the guy that can kind of come in and do anything and make it good. You may not be the tits guy for yeah. that one thing, but they don't really need that. They need a guy who can come in and really cover. I mean, if I get called to play reggae, I'm not Robbie Shakespeare and yeah. Sly Dunbar, so, yeah, kind of yeah. rhythm set, but I know enough about it where I can make something that's credible. Yeah
1: on it. Well, you're a musician. I mean, it's like, you're not just a bass player and that's what they playing piano, listening to all that music. I mean, I, yeah, I felt I was the same way, but see, we're fortunate that somehow we made a career of that. Yeah. That's a hard thing
0: to do because you, you get so pigeonholed and labeled. Well, I mean, that's really one of the things too. I remember talking to Hal Blaine about this and Hal told me like when he first started working in town, he said that one somebody hired him for a gig and they said, Oh, you do play percussion, don't you? He went, oh, yeah. Never played percussion in his <laughs> life. He says, if I say no, they're going to hire somebody else. Yeah. So he said yes. And then he went out and bought some stuff and played around with it and then came in and played confident. And his confidence made them think oh, yeah. he, they, knows he, he knows what he's doing. doing. You, you don't come in. There's so many guys that walk around with like a big stamp on their forehead yeah. that says "victim." Yeah, and you just oh, go, that's just, a waste. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, you just you get called for the stuff, and you come in and, and you give it, yeah. give it your all. You know, you don't say no, I can't do that. Never say um, no, but never. But, but like for me, coming from classical piano, the thing that was a real benefit for me was that when I did start working, I was a strong reader in both treble clef, bass clef, tenor clef. there you go. So when, like the other guys I was working with in the studio, a lot of them weren't readers. Yeah. So then word kind of got around that I was a strong reader. So then I would get called for these other things that those guys wouldn't get called for. So all of a sudden, word's out about you. And for me, it's like when I was in this band in 1967 called Group Therapy, our producer was Mike Post. Okay. Now, we weren't allowed to play on our record. Wrecking Crew played on I was sitting there at United Studios, Studio A, looking through the window at Hal Blaine, Carol Kaye, yeah. Bobby West, Mike Melvoin, Larry Nektel, Mike Rubini, wow. Tommy Tedesco, wow. Dennis Budimir, Al Casey, Jim Gordon was the young percussionist wow. on the day. It was all those guys made our record. And I thought to myself, I could never do this. These guys, they're just this other world. Wow. And three years later, you I was working with guy. them every day. You sang all the stuff, and then, I mean, you learned
1: hard work, self-discipline. Yeah, Nobody told you to practice. You had to practice. And then perseverance. You've learned that. Once you learn that, man, you can take that and put it into everything, you know? Yeah. You know how to get from A to Z. <laughs> the other thing about reading, I mean, you must have this thing. Like, right? all of a sudden, you got, like, 80 songs to learn. There's no way you can memorize that. Yeah. No way. Like, we just did a session. It was, like, 13 songs in two days. Yeah. No, a day and a half.
0: Yeah, a day and just a half. You just put the
1: paper up. You and I look at each other, we talk. talking, I'm going to do this beat this time, all right, cool. And you're reading, they don't even have, it's just chord charts. No, it's changes. just chord charts. Chord charts. So, I mean, nobody in that room would have been there if we couldn't read. Nobody. And yet
0: all of us, you know, we're not just readers, we're musicians that can do it without charts if you need to. Yeah, but but like, you know, I mean, it's one of those things I, I always enjoy, like when we do those dates and I look down and I see your charts and how you've, you've really orchestrated. The, you're not just banging out. A beat, you know, you're orchestrating your drum parts and we go like when we get to the bridge, let's kind of change things up. And you make it as musical as you possibly can. But that only comes through a number of things. It comes through experience. It comes through dedication. It comes through curiosity because you want to go, how can we make this better? It's not like there are guys that can just fall into these things. That was one of the things back in the day, and I, I miss him every day, was with Jeff Picaro, Yeah. Because I remember doing a, a one project with him where if I, I thought about every other guy in town would just be sitting there. Yeah. And he just sat there and all he did was take out his brushes and the song went on and he was making sounds around the overheads and tapping a few things. And we went and listened to playback and went, perfect. And I always would tell people, I said, he's one of the bravest musicians mm-hmm. I know because he... Goes with his instinct on it. He doesn't do what the, the niche. You know, I mean, if he had to do what's expected, he can do it. But I mean, he always brought this other thing and you do the same thing. Like whenever we've done gigs, I'm always kind of sit there and I just go, that's so cool because you take it a place where most guys wouldn't go. And I think it's just
1: caring. You care about what yeah. you're doing. You're, you're always trying to do better. Yeah. I got this thing. I'll never be as great as I want to be, but I'm willing to spend my entire life trying to be as great as I can be. Well, I th-
0: forget who it was, like Pablo Casals or somebody mm-hmm. like that. It was like they were in their 90s and they're so they were saying how sad they were, you know, could be coming to the end of their life, and they were just starting to get it. Oh yeah, uh, you know. But that's it's you're never satisfied. Never. I mean, I walk away from things all the time. A part of me will go totally nailed, it. and another part of me goes, ah, should have. Ah, you know, you're always. Do you like it when people compliment or you? I go, hate it. I had a feeling, yeah. I hate it. I, like, yeah. My flesh crawls when I get complimented. Okay, here's the
1: other one. Like, later in life, you know, you when you're young, you're like, how'd I do? How'd I do? And then later I went, wait a minute, man. Self-validation. You don't need anybody to tell you shit. You know what you did. Yeah. And we're hard on ourselves. Yeah. But you gotta... But nobody's that, harder. Yeah, Nobody's harder. When you start looking toward yourself, it's just, that's, we're talking honesty now. But you don't want to depend on anybody because when you depend on people, all of a sudden, your boss... Says good job, and you're like yeah. And the next day he says you suck, and then you're a mess. Yeah. You don't want to. You, you.
0: I don't, don't depend on anybody. anybody. No. You depend on yourself. I go in and do the best job I can, and if for some reason it doesn't work for them, so be it. Yeah, you can't please everybody. Hey. But generally, ninety point ninety nine point five percent of the time, the people are happy.
1: Yeah. You know the thing that's cool about us is a musician. Like if you're in school studying, like my brother, my twin brother, he was like you get two papers a semester we make a mistake on Monday. We could redeem, we can redeem ourselves in the same show. Like, okay, I messed that up, but look at this. Okay. I want to talk about, I mean, Phil Collins. The reason why I'm bringing up, because I mean, he was like, to me, I mean, three major bands, Brand X, Genesis, Phil Collins, singer, songwriter, producer, innovative. I mean, it just drove me nuts when I would read people would like, even saying one negative thing about him.
0: Are you kidding me? Yeah, This guy, you would hope to be one. Piece he was a of- huge target for people that are just I don't jealous. I understand it. I, yeah. Jealous. It's got to. I mean, dude. when people would start saying stuff, I go, "Show what you've done, dude." I don't get it. I man. mean, they would call him like the Cabbage Patch Kid of rock because he wasn't a studly guy yeah. on stage. He's and all. Funny. And He's- I'm and I'm going, okay, let's see. We'd be out there. He could sell out stadiums every night. Yeah. And they would say, oh, he could have come back three more nights, you know, but we had to get on to the next thing. and stadium. Yeah. And and his his first off, he first and foremost is a drummer. I mean, if if you were walking down the street and met Phil, had no idea who he was, and he started talking and you said, so what do you do? He would go, I'm a drummer. Right. I mean, to him, that was... His when passion, we passion, deepest passion. It was really cool. I, one, I forget which Disney movie it was. It was either Brother Bear or Tarzan. And one of the main songs on it, Tina Turner sang. So when we did the premiere in New York, she flew in from Switzerland to be there at the premiere wow. of it and to, and to perform with us. And there was a big choir on it. We had like 16 singers on this thing. That was the way it was done in the movie. So they wanted it to be. And Tina comes walking in and immediately goes up to all the singers, goes, let me hear you, hear you, hear you. You step, move back this way, orchestrates the whole thing. And all Phil's doing is playing drums. And I look back at him, he was a pig in shit. He was so happy, man. It was like, let her that's her. He just wants to play drums. And he was back there, didn't have to think about a thing except playing drums. And he was as happy as I'd ever seen him. But he's one of those guys that I I remember doing some stuff where we were trying to hear, like, get the song right. And as great as Chester Thompson is a great drummer. But he's he's playing it, and we're just and Daryl Sturman and I are looking at each other going. Something just isn't right. We couldn't peg it. And we just asked Phil, we said, "Could we play it one time with you? Just with you. Just with, with him. Yeah, and, as opposed to, yeah, y- just you. And, and all of a sudden we look at each other and went, yeah, yeah. That's, that's it. I mean, his pocket and his feel. And and people go, well, he's not a you know, flash. I go, well, go listen to Brand X, listen to some of the stuff. He can do all that shit. No kidding. But he plays to what the music is. He's needs. really musical. He's very musical. Very musical. And when he when he sings, he sings like a drummer, like you hear him doing stuff where he's scatting. It's so rhythmic because he's, he can, he would sing in the same way when they interviewed Sinatra and they talked to him, he says, oh, I think trumpet when I sing, he, he wow. said, he likes to do phrasing like a horn player right. would do on that. Not just the singer, but listening to those kind of nuances that those guys did. And he was he used to, these great players with all the great Nelson Riddle charts and all this yeah. stuff. So what a compliment because he picked you. And liked you, so that's my basic... Well, he and I met doing a Lee Rittenhour record. Um, he was playing drums on it? He was playing drums on it. Lee called me and he called Phil and we played f- one or two tracks on this album. And it was just before he cut Face Value. And he said to me, he says, man, I'd love to work with you. He says, I've, I've always liked your work with James and stuff. And I said, I'd love to, but I can't. I said, I'm already working with James. I said, we already had a tour booked and everything. I said, but I'd love to work with you at some point. Yeah. So, And he called me in 84 and asked me if I'd come to England and do the No Jacket Required album. I got. bought that record. Yeah, and so we did that at Townhouse Studios. And then right after that, we went on the road for 85. Now, he was still not known as a, as a solo artist. I mean, he was known as the drummer in Genesis, Genesis. Yeah, But when we started that tour, it was small venues. It was going to be like places like, you know, theaters. Then all of a sudden, Susudio hit. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden, we had to cancel everything and move into arenas, arenas at yeah. that point. The whole dynamic of everything yeah. changed. And after that, by the time we got to the But Sirius tour, it was all stadiums and you know huge venues at that point. But he was still the same guy. Yeah. And one of the great things was there was always that thing. To me, one of the greatest songs I've still ever played on stage is In the Air Tonight. The tension that that song creates. Dude. Now, when we would do those yeah. all the tours up to the to the first final farewell tour, which was in two thousand four, Chester Thompson would be on one side of the stage and Phil would be set up on the other, and they would do like a, do- a lot of d- double drum stuff yeah, and all that. Saw, well, yeah. when we would do in the air tonight, he would be wandering around during the whole course of this thing, and then finally, when the big drum fill would come, he'd step over and get in his kit. Well, in the two thousand four tour, they were set up like that, but we also had this big area above the stage and he started walking and as it was getting closer to that he's walking up stairs and people in the crowd are like freaking no, out no. and as he, as he gets up there like a second before that Phil another kid comes up out of the floor and he steps into it and does it the place would go burst I get goosebumps still thinking about it so what happened was when we were doing Phil Collins's 2004 tour the not uh, the first final farewell tour it was yeah. called There was talk towards the end. It was a long, long tour. and uh, What's long? About a year. That's that's I mean, solid straight through. Straight through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did the same thing on the But Serious tour. I think we we started the tour on like January 3rd, and I think we finished like mid-December. How many? Had about 18 days at home. That's what I was going to ask. 18. That is serious. You hear about these people. I was on tour...
1: All year, and it's like two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on. Well, you weren't on tour all year. You were on tour half
0: the year. Yeah. This is real tour. This is hardcore. This is really hardcore. How many shows a week? Well, with Phil, it would really depend. They would do as many as they could, but it was a big setup, so we had piggyback systems and all that. Yeah, two systems. Like one stage you're performing
1: on, they're building another one. Yeah,
0: or we had ones where we were touring in the States, and they had one that went to Japan, and then when we went to Japan, the States one went to Europe. you know, so you're going back and, and they're forth.
1: Gi- and they're giving this guy crap.
0: Yeah, no, he's like the most professional cat I ever worked with. His involvement in every, I'll get back to the to, to yeah. that and say when we would rehearse with Phil, we would rehearse like either at Shepperton or Bray Film Studios. We'd get a big sound stage so we could go right into production rehearsals practically from the beginning, so that the crew could be building yeah. sets and all. that. Yeah, and when we would and we would rehearse a, a good month for the tour. And Phil's attitude was the first audience deserves as good a show as the last audience. So you don't hit that first show until you dialed in that show. And what we did was we would have people come to like the last week and watch the rehearsals and talk to them like Manilow and his band came. Yeah. They were in England and they came out and, and we sat and talked afterwards and just said anything not work and yeah. all this. And we just kind of felt it and so we could fine tune it. But so when we were out on the 2004 tour, there was talk that Phil was maybe going to retire at the end of that tour. He was like, done. Yeah. He was, he was through. I had a, a bass tech on that tour named Steve Winstead. His nickname was Chinner. Yeah, And I think he, he showed up probably coming off a tour with a bass player who had like 10 basses that he wanted new strings every day. And all of so a sudden he was like, fucking hungry. What can I do for you? And I looked at him, I said, well, nothing. I I can't think of it. I've never had a tech before. I always did my own gear. And I said, (laughs) I guess just make sure the amp turns on on stage and I'll tune up and stuff. Before I I had two basses with me, one as a backup in case something (laughs) happened to the other. So for the whole tour, he was giving me shit all the time, just kind of, because he was so overqualified and he (laughs) ended up like, getting lozenges for the background singers and helping the drummer. He was bored. Yeah. So when when they said Phil might be retiring at the end of it, I thought we had like a hundred crew guys out there on their own. I mean, these are massive productions. yeah. yeah. And I thought, I may never see a lot of these people again because they're from all over the world. And uh, so I thought, I'm just going to take a picture of everybody and put it in a little folder and someday I can take a trip down memory lane if I don't remember anything anymore. Yeah. So the first person I go over to is Chinner sitting there at his laptop working. And I say, hey, Chinner, give me a smile. And he goes, I take a picture and I look and I go, ooh, that's kind of (laughs) cool. So I go get Phil, his manager, caterers, truck drivers, all the crew, the band, everybody End up with about 150 pictures. And I put it away for a couple of years, didn't even think about it. Then in 2007, I think it was, I went out with Toto for the first time I worked with those guys on the road and I went, I'm going to do that again. And I got all those guys and it got up to about 300 pictures. It took on a life of its own. Yeah. Where at this point, I think I probably have about 13,000 pictures from, I mean, every walk of life. I mean, we've done so many sessions together where we get all the guys on the things, Charles's sessions that we do and stuff. And I've got pictures of like yo-yo mob pretending he's cutting his finger off with a (laughs) scissor and, Vince Gill and I've, I've got in the book there's a, a double spread on there I think it was the one you opened to that night w- where we had Jeff Beck on one side and Charlie Watts on the other yeah. on it and, and the weird part of going through the book now is so many of the people yeah. are gone yeah in it here's the book I'll show you I'll, uh, a lot of work went into this just uh, I like the kid, even the, wow even just the address up in the corner That is it's the we too getting. so a lot of work went into this because when you open it it opens like this. And oh then, man. And here's the book. What a great so we made this so that th- it can be shipped all over the world in this box. Yeah. So we got that and like once again, if you're gonna do it, do it right. Yeah, absolutely. Get in here and pull off the uh
1: so I remember the, I the
0: protective coating.
1: Right here in this room, when I was going to help you lift a crap load of these things in crates and I was you had ended up doing it earlier. Yeah. 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 And that this,
0: so, man, that's a good-looking book. Well, and feel it. I mean, the cover is padded. Oh, oh man, it's padded. It. It's like yeah. a like, like a pillow. Yeah. I mean, we re- I really went in deep on this. Well, thing. if you can do it, do it right. Yeah. So and so the thing is, it's just I've never felt a book like that.
1: Well, it's it's I've it. never felt the, obviously somebody offered that as an idea.
0: Yeah. I mean, here we've got there's Melissa Etheridge right there. Hold um, it up, Dave Koz. So- joshua bell sitting there i yep. looked at joshua i said you know it's hard to look badass with a stradivarius yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna put it up here the camera can see it wow ah. and here's a cover there you go
1: and then the back cover oh well, of course that should be the
0: front cover there's about six thousand pictures in, in there. there you're in well, here
1: yeah somewhere i know i remember
0: were, where i did it you are absolutely One we, we did it outside of uh sound city yeah i knew it was against the wall media, of sound yeah. City. here's Oren Waters, who's one of the great background singers from the Waters family. There's Judith Owen, who I work with. Hank Williams Jr. down here. What a character. The great Allie Willis and Graham Nash. I mean, we really, there's Billy Gibbons and uh, Ray Benson, Joni Mitchell. I mean, when you can get a can of Spam to give you the finger. (laughs) that was up at City Walk. This was a, a real labor of Love doing yeah. this, this project. I'm gonna see if I can. Are you now
1: are you already thinking another
0: one? Uh, I've got the pictures for it, but I don't know if I want to go in this deep again. I may do a virtual a lot of work. I may do a virtual one that will be online. Oh, that's cool. this is one of my favorite pictures. This woman does the dyeing of the instruments of, of the wood at Warwick in Germany. Yeah. Warwick and you
1: were work based. <laughs> the rubber glove with the uh, And I put it on there, you're down about a quart. It <laughs> uh, uh, worked. That was a you. You played. I Warwick still. I based. still. Oh, yeah. did. Here's great Charlie. Oh my God, Charlie Watts. You get that there.
0: Huh? So so uh, so this everybody. Is, this has been and, and here's one of my favorite ones. So I'll, I'll show you this. This is this was important to me after the discussions we've been having here. This was my bass teacher, and he's just oh, the guy that, that turned me that bass. That's Ted Lynn. That was just before he passed away. Wow. He had cancer. Wow. But, uh, so it was, it was great. So the but book has, I mean, it's got a lot, a lot of sentiment, a lot of sentiment and meaning. And it's heavy, It's six pounds. It's like a, so when I'm shipping these, it, it is a challenge. So I did this then in doing that and the clubhouse with the YouTube yeah. channel, Now the YouTube channel was a total accident. The way that started, Yeah. we had come off of Phil Collins's tour and, I had guys writing to me going, man, we saw you like in, you know, in Germany or Brazil or something. They said, the show's unbelievable. We couldn't hear quite all the details of, of some of the, you know, bass parts and stuff just because of the okay. size. So uh, what I ended up doing was had Michel Collin, who was our front of house guy, send me, a, he sent me a show from Adelaide. And I put it in my computer and I set a little bass amp next to me and I plugged a little Bose speaker into the headphone jack on the computer and I played around where I could get a balance where the bass was a little bit louder yeah. than the track. And I'm looking around the beauty of the way your room is set up here. When I'm doing my thing, I'm sitting at a desk. I pull the drawer out and I've got a selfie stick with a C-clamp holding it to the <laughs> And I put my phone in it and yeah. I just do that. So I figured I'll start with the first song of the show, first day. And I played along with it. And then the second day, I played the second song. Well, by the third day, people started writing, going, we love your YouTube channel. I'm going, what are you talking about? I had no idea it was becoming a channel. channel. I was just trying what to show some posted? examples. Where did you post the first I put one? it on YouTube. I just put it on you YouTube. You put it on YouTube. See, I, I've never done it. You can just put it on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, I just put it on YouTube. And, and people it, were, he, were and, surfing, and they found it. And they found it. And so all of a sudden, and now today was like my 1,280th video, I think. Is, um, it, is it a lot of work? Time-consuming? No. It really doesn't take that much time to do it, but I enjoy it so much. Well, that's, and, and, that's the and most then important all the, the chats that all, you know, all the, you know, the stuff that people write back and stuff about it. Oh, man, I was at this show. This was great. I love this. And it's really interesting. So during the course of all these things going on, then this happened and I've brought you one. I'm going to unpack it for you here. Now, we kind was of it like it, a wig hair for me. <laughs> this is hair for men, hair for Ken. It's my beard.
1: Oh my! <laughs> so when you wear it, it goes like this. You wear it, and it
0: looks like I have a beard.
1: Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god.
0: That's, that's, that's dude. Talk about self marketing. Oh yeah. And the thing that's great is this is really a good quality. It shirt. is. And and the uh, and really and the, good the, quality the ink that's used. The first time it's washed and dried, it embeds it into the fabric. Oh, that's... So it, it gets softer, and it's totally permanent. It's not one of those... So you gotta ask, Is you, you wash it with the darks or the lights? I just... Either one. It'll it'll work. And now you just made me realize. All right, tell
1: me about the beard. Like, is this an accident, or was that really thought out? Like, Kiss creating their
0: own... No, I mean... Was uh, it an accident? I mean... How... When I was in high school, it was an incredibly restrictive time in terms of, like, yeah, long hair. Yeah, all yeah all I got my ass kicked. So, um... When I got my high school diploma in 65, I kind of went, I'm done with this. I'm not going to have anybody to and I just stopped shaving at that point. Now I cut this all the time just because you do? Yeah, I keep cuz if if it gets, gets too long, it's in the base when I'm playing and it gets all, you know, or, or when, when you food. go to change and yeah, well, food is fine. I got I've still got a in and out burger from 3 months ago hiding back in here. Uh, it's one of these things that it it became a life an of image own. without, without, I mean, it's, it's kind of like I've talked with you about in the past too. It's like, if people look up on stage and you're up there playing, they know who you are. Yeah. You've got an image that Glad you have you. created. Yeah. It's such like, a it's, hard thing to do. It's really hard to do. It's like people like, you know, Celine and Cher and all these people that are like the one name artists and stuff. This thing gets cultivated. I have so many people that write back and they go, I always wondered who that, you know, that guy with the big beard was, you know, on stage. And now. We've created communities where people write and go, man, I've been following your, shit, your stuff for 50 years now. And it's so cool to be. And then I started doing cameos, which is that whole other thing where people write to me and they say, can you send a birthday oh, wish got, my Oh, I'm on cameo yeah. too. I've done about 100, 190 yeah. of those over the That's past few years. This is all because of It's technology. all because of COVID. Yeah. I, you know, I, I had never recorded at home before COVID either. Never. never. I never had a home set up. And some guy, a guy to, a, a guy probably. contacted me and he said they wanted to do a cover of Easy Lover. And yeah. they said, could you play on it? Well, I said, I could, but I can't yeah. because I said, I'm not set up for home recording. I have no idea. Well, he knew somebody at SSL. So next thing I know, they sent me an SSL 2 Plus interface. And I contacted Steve Postel from the immediate yeah. family. And he gave me a tutorial about GarageBand. Because to do my bass parts, I don't need more than Garage Band. Unlike me, I need a whole studio with mics. And a, you can see I have an engineer because drums is a whole different beast. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I won't do it like half-assed. No, well, it's like a guy contacted me about doing something. I'm going to probably do it next week, but I, he has a home studio. I said, I'll come to you because the chart's nine pages. And I said, I'd rather be there and you engineer rather than me trying to... Oh, yeah. Moving pages, nine pages, oh, sitting yeah. in front of the thing is not... But I said, if uh, I'm happy to play, if you can engineer it. And he said, yeah, that'll be cool. But normally, you know, I just finished doing the thing that, that the guy had that you had played on. And
1: oh, he, uh, John Taglieri. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I just sent those him are the bass good parts. Songs, man. Yeah.
0: They were really good. Yeah. And it was really fun yeah. with that. That's, so, fun. so, but yeah. for me, it was one of those things that, you know, it opened up yet another avenue because when, yeah. when COVID hit, all of a sudden, that book looked like a fart in a hurricane. It just blew away and there was nothing to look for. And you could either get totally depressed yeah. about it and go, woe is me. Or you kind of go on. Hmm. What am I going to do now? Well, you're an adapter guy, die. I call well, you it have adapt to die. You adapt or you will die. Yeah. And so
1: you just, That's what happened in that room. Uh, well, I already had the studio. I was here every day. Thank God. So it was like a ghost town here in LA, but I'd come here every day. And then because uh, I do inspirational speaking. I went, well, you know, I'm going to invest in cameras and TV monitors and see if I can do them. Do it right. Do it from here. Yeah. point is, you adapt. To stay successful, you have to adapt. Nobody said that COVID was coming. When the records business, I was living in Indiana, because people flew me all over the world. I had drums in New York, Nashville, L.A., Indiana, Japan, and Germany. People just fly me everywhere. When I saw the budgets, as a matter of fact, it was a session I think you were on, because it was oh, what's it, a project coordinator called me up. I know you were on the session. I was at the Sunset Marquee. And she called me up and she goes, hey, Kenny, I got this session. And I think she said, Lee's on it. And she said, if you happen to be in town, I went, what do you mean if I happen to be in town? I said, just fly me in. She says, silence. And I went, are the budgets changing? I already knew record sales was going down. And she said, yeah. And a month later, I had an apartment out here and eventually I just sold everything, moved everything out here, got my own studio. That's my point. I adapted I didn't stop selling records. They stopped selling. Yeah. So I had a choice, adapt or die. I'm not going to stay in Indiana and just wait for stuff to happen. I know a lot of people said, well, you know, that's fucked. I'm not doing, you know, you know, didn't. I'm like, dude,
0: adapt or, or you're going to be dead. Yeah. Well, and adapting isn't that complicated. It's just a matter of wrapping your head around. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of like when things went from analog to digital, when all these different things have come, I mean, especially having been in this business this long. Now you see all these different things come and go and different yeah. trends and different people who were here. Now they're yeah. here or yeah. they're totally gone. You just try to look at every day as you know, how can I make the most out of this and still feel viable in a less and less viable world? You're the perfect example. Look, at you're still
1: here and you're vibrant. Look, you got all these other things. Plus you're still touring. Plus you're still doing sessions. It's just like you're trying to get touchdowns. You just said, well, okay, that play didn't work. I guess you can't do that again because so I got sacked. Uh, see, how do we get in there? It's always, how do I get in the end zone? It's
0: Well, it's, and then we've got all this stuff going on with this movie about our band now. Oh, yeah. Talk about uh, yeah, the family. We, is, well, and, so we have this group now called The Immediate Family. Yeah. I think I brought. Oh, cool. Our new album has been waiting a year now to be released. But because of this COVID. The first, this is the second album. Th- this will be the second album. Yeah. This was the first album here. Let's see. Yeah. And Bruce, uh,
1: Bruce Corto is a great guy. Yeah, he loves music. Is he
0: the label? He's the label. See, that's incredible. And, um, so it's it's myself and Danny Korchmar, Russ Hodgel from the section. So here we are, the section. Then, in the early days of, uh, or the kind of the latter days of the section, we had played with Waddy, but Waddy wasn't that, that's not his music doing that stuff. So he kind of passed on it of being a part of it which it w- was for totally fine because we were still working together yeah. all the time and stuff. But he's more of like a Stones kind of guy. He didn't care about fusion or any of that yeah. stuff. So the band is Russ Kunkel, Danny Korchmar, myself, Waddy, and another friend, Steve Postel, yeah. who I first worked with Steve, I think about 16 years ago. He came up to me in a Nam show, said, you got to work on my record. I said, call me. And he did. And we've worked ever since. So he's a part of it. And it got together because Danny got offered a deal, I forget the name of the label all of a sudden, uh, in Japan, there was a label that wanted him to do a solo album that was going to be like covers. Because the thing is, a lot of people don't understand, for those that understand the Wrecking Crew and what that was about, that was a group of the musicians who worked kind of late 50s up into the early 70s in Los Angeles and did everything. They never left the studio. They were studio guys, they would go from one session to yeah. another all day long, yeah. every and day. night long. Yeah. I mean, they would go around the clock. Yeah, they were amazing, the but their commitment was that, well, there was a documentary movie made about that by Denny Tedesco, whose father right. was Tommy Tedesco, yep. who was like the yep. great studio guitarist ever. Yeah. Well, he approached us about doing a documentary about the immediate family. Oh. And he said, the thing that's really different is he said, those guys' career kind of the high points of their career was about 10 years years. and he said you guys have been doing it over 50 years you've toured with the artists recorded with them produced them written songs for them so it's a much next level yeah it's a very different commitment so he did this documentary film and it's been hitting all the film festivals and i've got i'm going i'm going to the orlando film festival and one up north they just were at the Boulder Film Festival, and, and the movie won audience favorite music documentary. We won audience favorite in Woodstock Film Festival, I think the, the High Tallgrass Film Festival in Wichita, Kansas, and it did great in Nashville. They're looking for a buyer at this point, so they're doing all the film Oh, so festivals. there's nowhere to see it yet. There's nowhere to see it yet, You're but there will be probably by the end of the year. I well, uh, mean, think but, you think but, Netflix would do it? They did Hired Gun. Oh, no, I mean... It's all in the business side of it now. So now, you know, our part is long, yeah. long over yeah. with. And de- so it's the producers and everybody. I mean, they, the movie was financed and it's made. Yeah, well, that's the most But now they're thing. trying to sell it so that the, the, the people who financed it can get their money back and they can start making some dough with this. Yeah. So, but it turned out great. And it's really a, an amazing piece of work. The, the thing that's been hard is like when COVID hit, you had all the time in the world, so you could pick and do all these different things. Well, as things have been opening up, I don't want to give up all the shit I started digging yeah. in. So now I'm adding, like exactly. you said, touring. I mean, I'm sitting out there on the road with Lyle every morning. I, I I'm sitting out there doing a video yeah. for my YouTube channel, and then what I've found that the people really dig is I film the venue every day that we play, and I'm filming from the front of the place through the I was on oh. the roofs of these buildings, down in the attics, you know, in in the basements, showing like how the all the stuff that raises and lowers the the orchestra pit works, and then meeting people in the building and just talking to them about the, you know. Are you do, the, holding the camera yourself? I'm holding it. Just it's all handheld. It's you, I, I I should do that
1: more. You know, I I got my people telling man, just start filming because now I'm going to Europe uh, with Joe Satriani. He does no sound checks that's the first time I've ever done anything like that, except yeah. for when you do a festival. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it, for me, I just have to prepare more in my hotel room, playing on pads yeah. and stuff. But yeah, I don't get the opportunity to, I wouldn't be able to, but anyway,
0: that's brilliant. You know, that, that's, that's but, the type uh, of What I'm doing scenes. is taking the fans on the road with yeah. us. And they're, I mean, and, and I've interviewed Lyle, I've interviewed the guys and, They've gotten to know them and everybody feels that they're kind of a part of this thing. Yeah. And, uh, That's and summer good. will be fun. There, there's one of the guys, uh, I'm ho- hopeful he'll be back in summer with us, Brad Lele. He's the head of the sax department at North Texas. Yeah. Badass sax. I'm history. sure. But every time we would get to a venue, he would go find someplace in the building quiet where he can just sit. And I was searching for Brad every day. So I'd be walking on and you'd hear him wafting through the building oh, and I'd wow. finally find him in a room and stuff. And it became this thing like, where's Brad? Where's- and, and you look for all these hooks. But I remember there were times like I was joking and I would say, yeah, I'm going to have to get a green screen. And do-, and the people were like, don't, don't do, do, do this thing. You know, yeah. Don't. T- I mean, I was doing it because I knew I wasn't going to yeah, do it. Yeah, but yeah. watching how people have become dedicated to this and, and they like the, the fact that when things go wrong, they go wrong. I don't, there's no recut there's no edits there's no nothing yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is the videos are top to bottom yeah That's just phenomenal so it's been it's been fun and i really at this point i mean i'll be 76 in a month yeah and i'm kind of going who who would have ever thought you know you that you always kind of thought growing up that you're gonna be out in the past year by this age because anybody this age well, yeah. was grandpa that well, old my guy dad
1: retired at 70
0: yeah and I remember thinking wow well
1: yeah seventy I'm like are you kidding me I just turned 70 I'm not with <laughs> I don't even know what that word is. is that a Chinese word? I don't know. Yeah. Never heard of it before, but I hear people talking about it. I'm not, there's no way. No, this is the heaven. This is from, this is the best part. Yeah. It's like if you were in a rocket ship and it said, you only got enough fuel to go to Mars. But when you get to Mars, it says, well, you can actually travel five more years. But the pedal to the metal. Yeah. I want to go further until I die. Yeah. You know, why Why would, wouldn't I? I mean, I want to ask you one more thing. Yeah. And, and the thing is, it's like, so Glenn Johns. Have you ever worked with Glenn? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Glenn Johns, one of the most intense producers, English guy, The Who, The Stones, probably The Beatles, Led Zeppelin. And he recorded, you know, everybody. You know, he has he, a great documentary where he didn't understand this new band that probably Irving Azoff said to check him out, The Eagles. And now I do rock records until he heard him sing. And then he did The Eagles record. Anyway, I'm doing a Stevie Nicks record, and, and I want to ask you the same question he asked me. And he goes, I'll tell you my story first. He goes, you know, he was all business. And then afterwards have a glass of wine. So, so Kenny, um, what haven't you done that you, uh, would like to do? Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, uh, and then he goes quickly, what's your five-year plan? And I felt like, yeah, I'm going like, well, I kind of dig what I'm doing. I, I dig doing the sessions. and I dig doing the tour. I mean, I really wouldn't change anything. And my point is, is that Well, that's what exactly happened. and I haven't changed anything except added more things like you said. But the point is, I was thinking like, am I missing something? Because I don't have a five-year plan. And am I missing something that I'm not like, oh, this is good, but really what I want to do is that. So how do you answer those questions?
0: Exactly like you. Yeah. I have no plan. Yeah. I have no plan. I mean, I'm, I'm content. I mean, at this point in my life, if all of a sudden everything ended today and I couldn't work again. I'm solvent enough where I'm not panicking at that point, I would miss it. But I have other interests that I like doing. But I like the fact I haven't had to make that decision. But I have no plans. Like when these people looking off and got this this whole thing. I mean, some of those guys have done incredibly well and they're much richer than I am. But that's not the way my head works at all. So I'm just, I'm happy when that phone rings and I get to go to work and,
1: and stuff. You've done so well at what you do and it comes from a place. Which I, I think is heavy. The same with me. So we realized our purpose in life. Yeah. Very young, we realized that's what I want to do. I mean, you can think all day long, but this is the truth. Words exactly. are ideas, the feelings are the truth. You follow that. You can't really do anything wrong. You yeah. can't, unless you want to kill somebody. That's wrong. But that's, yeah. you know, and before I finished, I, I had no idea because I was doing some looking on, you know, uh, looking at Wikipedia But went, you paint. I didn't know you paint. Well or draw if you or go
0: if you go to the the, the website where the book is, yeah. I also have my artwork is available. That's and, awesome. See well, hold on, let me see if you I, got all this stuff. See. see, God dude, this hold reminds
1: on. me so much of me. You know, it's like you just follow your heart and you just yeah. and you you learn that if you put the time in and follow follow through with your idea, because you know it's like a math equation, zero equals zero. You do nothing, you mm-hmm. get nothing. But if you do something. And you've proven over and over again if you just do what you're feeling, you will get results. But you got to do something. Yeah. And you obviously have. Let me see if this will
0: come up in here. I could show. But so if, people want, if, if people want to thing? check any of that stuff, yeah. uh, you go to com. Oh my God. Leland Lelandsclars with an S.com. Beard. Because
1: yeah. I I wanted Leland to um Leland com Because I know a lot of Leland Sklars out there. Oh yeah. there's like a billion of well, like them
0: somebody bought my my domain. Oh uh, and and that's, that's how I ended up with Leland Sklar's beard, because Leland Sklar, Lee Sklar, all that stuff was taken. I'm not on I don't know what the service is here, Well so. the paintings, I mean, did you start when you were a
1: kid painting? Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's always been part of you. Yeah. Well dude, man, uh this is it's great. It's like I've known you forever, but now I feel like I really know you. Well, now we can go cuddle in the back. Okay, yeah, I brought ointment with me. Of course, the um, the camera's are off now, right? <laughs> I like to, when I spoon, I like to be, you know, in the back.
0: Sorry. Well, I, you know, to me, I, I I just, I'll probably fall asleep. So you just do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I try and I try not to tense up, you know, <laughs> just so it feels a more. Okay, well, whatever, cool. Sure. Oh, awesome, dude. <laughs>